Galatians in chapter 2. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, and we will be on verses 11 through 14. Now, all of what is going on here, you have to kind of keep this in the back of your mind, is this problem of these troublemakers trying to make salvation uh, contingent upon works. Whatever the works are, in Galatians, it's circumcision. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to do this work in order to be saved. Our context is going to be a little different. I'll bring that up in a minute. But when we look at Peter tonight, you have to understand that no matter what Peter says, and even says very boldly, and if you confronted Peter about his belief system, I think you would get a right answer. The problem is his actions are teaching contrary to his mouth. And because it has implications on the gospel, Paul won't tolerate it. It's like what you're doing is undoing what you say about the gospel. And it's undoing what Paul is saying about the gospel. You cannot fight about everything, but you must fight for the gospel. And so I hope we can at least see that tonight. Just a few short verses, verse 11, but our, <clears throat> I wouldn't translate but, I would translate the first word as now, but um, we're not going to quibble over that. Uh, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him, notice, to his face, because he was condemned. In translation, he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that means they came from Jerusalem, that's the Jewish church, that's headquarters at home. Before they came, <clears throat> this is what Peter was doing, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, the they being these Jews, when they came, he drew back, he separated himself, and then it gives us the motive for this, he was a fearing fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews now watch his actions that he did because of fear verse 13 the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him his actions of hypocrisy led others into hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy your actions have implications upon other believers and you become accountable for your sin and the sin you could lead them into now they'll be accountable for what they do but you're going to be held accountable for leading them there verse 14 so now back to Paul when I saw what did he see that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, a couple of parallels in this introduction to set this before us, but when I say evangelical church, I'm 
it's not just Baptists, it can be other groups in there that somewhat hold to a similar gospel that we hold to. So evangelical in a broad sense. And so evangelical church says phrases. They say, salvation is of the Lord. Amen. It's a good phrase. God saves. I agree. It's all grace. I agree. And they say other phrases like that. Those are good phrases, and they're true. Now, but in practice, there's a lot of other things that go on in evangelical churches that the actions are nullifying the true phrases. These phrases are replaced with a teaching of what man must do in order to get saved. You must open your heart and let Jesus in. You must choose Jesus. You must walk to the front. You must repeat this prayer and other such things we set before them. Do this and become this. It's all grace. Do this and become this. God saves, but you must let him in. I'm confused. Right, because the actions that are being given to the people are counteracting the truth of the scriptures. So the churches, not all churches, but churches in general, their actions teach people they must do something to be saved when the Bible says God saves. It's God's work. It's completely by his grace. We're all recipients of grace. So I remind you, just to keep it biblical, people are saved while sitting in their pew. A person can be saved sitting right over there in the middle of the sermon. Or they could be saved while the song's being saved and they're like, you know what? I don't think this world's my home anymore. It can happen. God can save them right there. You can be saved driving your car down the road. That's what happened to my dad. You, you could be sitting in your living room and a phrase come to your mind that you heard preached or a Bible verse that you read. You, you could be walking down the street and overhear a street preacher. He says, repent and believe the gospel. And you're like, I think I will. I mean, this, God can move on somebody in any context, anywhere, because it's grace. You could be just reading your Bible. Many people have been saved at a motel because the Gideons left a Bible. And they start reading the Bible. Uh, uh, even Johnny Uckel here this morning, that's his confession. Is, he's reading the Bible, and that's what brought him to know the Lord. Many other scenarios, God's grace enters, changes the heart, shows them the beauty of Christ. Any action that distracts, deceives, or deters men from the gospel of grace is to be rebuked. Okay? Order matters and actions must be weighed. Now... Just trying to stick with the context of Galatians and some things going on here. Whether a person holds to the dietary laws or whether a person abides by the circumcision of their children or whether you wash your hands before you eat or you observe certain feasts and festivals and moon days and things like that or other religious practices, it must be clearly understood that none of those things will procure salvation. You circumcise your kid or don't circumcise your kid, it has no bearing on whether or not they go to heaven. 
You hold the dietary laws. Don't hold to the dietary laws. It's not going to make you go to heaven or keep you out of heaven. Okay? We have to understand that and like things that we can't ever give the impression that doing this thing, being involved in this thing, is what has to happen in order for you to get to heaven. That is a deterrent to the gospel of grace. I remind you, and I would like you to turn in the Bible. I try not to turn to a lot of passages when I preach, but I do want you to turn to this one in Romans chapter 4. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's just read it. Uh, what then are we going to say was gained by Abraham? It's verse 1. Our forefather according to the flesh. What did he do in the flesh that helped him? Because if Abraham's justified by works, well, he has something to boast about but not before God. For, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. That's his due. And, no, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart, separate from works. As he says in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Just very much with the Galatians, right? The only person who can be blessed like this is if they obey the law and get circumcised. Is that the case? Is it only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then how was it counted to him? Here's the question. Was he counted righteous before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised who are... Who are who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Righteousness came before the work of circumcision. By the way, I would insert also in that infant baptism, that if you're going to use infant baptism in relation to circumcision, you ought to get it right and understand that if you're going to do sprinkling, it better be after faith, not before faith, because that's the way it was for Abraham. Not that Abraham was sprinkled, but you get the parallel. Now, it is for sure that Christians live different than the world. At least it ought to be. Express our love to Christ by our obedience. But what Christians do is not an attempt to gain God's favor. It's the result of having already received his favor. A child does not do what he does to get his parents to be his parents. He does them because he's already their child. Peter's actions taught a gospel of works. And today, many in the evangelical world are teaching a gospel. This is going to be the difference. Peter's actions 
are teaching a gospel of works. Today, we're dealing with a gospel that leads to antinomianism, a gospel that says no law for anything. So we're on two different spectrums. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, the Apostle Paul had the gospel of grace, and he wasn't going to give upon that. Uh, Thesis tonight, the gospel is worth standing up for even if the most influential person in the evangelical one, if the, in the evangelical world, is the one distorting it. And per se, like, for example, I went to a funeral and a trustee of Southwestern Seminary did the funeral. And what he did was so godless and so contrary to the gospel that I would have stood up in the funeral and rebuked him, but I did not because of the people who were around me. I came home and wrote him a letter and sent it to him and told him what he had done to the gospel and that he ought to repent. It affected him. He got it, and he did some things. I'm not sure that he ever repented, but I couldn't remain silent. You just lied to these people. And so it, you have to confront. He's a trustee of the seminary. I don't care who you are. If you mess with the gospel, you can't get away with that. Somebody has to confront it. All right, moving on. Contending for the gospel, verse 11. Uh, he says here in verse 11 that when Cephas came to Antioch, <clears throat> the ESV says, I opposed him. Opposed to be in opposition to, to set oneself against. Just a couple of verses. Let's give them to you as a reference. But in 2 Timothy 3.8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed truth. So there was that idea of those who would oppose something that was good. There's also in Peter and in James this same statement, resist the devil, resist him firm in your faith, stand against this. That's what Paul is doing with the apostle Peter. Apostle Peter is, as we learned in chapter 2, he's one of report. He's one that people look up to. He's one of the high rollers, if you will, in the religious movement. But he's wrong. He's wrong. And he deserves to be rebuked for his actions. You don't get a pass because you're an apostle. You don't get a pass because you're a Baptist. You don't get a pass because you're a preacher. If you're distorting the gospel, somebody ought to rebuke it. Somebody ought to call it on the carpet. And note, the first step of the call is face-to-face, one-on-one. Brother, you're out of line. Then you have the conversation and confront them with what their actions or their words may be doing to the gospel. Now, why did Paul oppose Peter? Verse 11, why did he do so? The SV says, he stood condemned. It's one word in the Greek, and it uses like half the Greek letters in the Greek alphabet. But he was condemned. He's in a position, if you want to say it this way, of self-condemnations. His actions are condemning himself. A couple of translations. He stood condemned. King James, he was to be blamed. Another translation, he had clearly done wrong. Young's literal He was blameworthy. Now, I want you to turn. I told you I don't do this much. We're going to do it one more time. But turn to Acts 15 because most of this comes from there. And I want you to see what Peter does, what he says. Because Peter's right, the Jerusalem council. Acts 15, verse 1. 
some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. And here's what they were teaching. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you see that in the text? You must do to be saved. And we have a meeting with all the religious heads, and we're saying nobody goes to heaven unless they do this work. That's the issue. Throw it on the table, and let's talk about it, right? Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I'm pretty thinking they're pretty heated. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, it's always tied to the local church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to, for them to keep the law of Moses. They're not giving an inch here. Paul and Barnabas saying one thing, the Jerusalem church saying another, no small dissension occurred. There's a church fight going on, if you will, and there's lines that are drawn, and everybody is stating their position. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, notice, Peter, Peter stands up had enough of this nonsense. Peter stands up in the middle of the room and he says, brothers, you know in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You remember that. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The Holy Spirit is not given to an unbeliever. They're uncircumcised, and they have the Holy Spirit. They were saved without circumcision. That's what Peter is declaring at the Jerusalem meeting. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, this is what Peter's saying, verse 10. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And then it goes on, and other speakers speak, Paul, Barnabas, James, and others speak. But I just want you to see Peter standing up in a heated debate, taking the right position. It's grace. It's faith. They received the Spirit. It's not about circumcision and doing something to get saved. God just reached down and saved Gentiles. All by grace. We all agree. But his actions in Galatian tell a different story. I want you to make the connection that a right confession does not justify wrong action. When your actions teach contrary to the gospel, we have a problem. 
your actions lead people astray, you need a Paul to look you in the eye and say, brother, you're wrong. This is the damage that you're doing. And that's what Paul does here for Peter. In our day, it's my view anyways, I think it's not far off. In our day, the gospel problem has been flipped. Instead of actions teaching a works-based salvation, we're dealing with a problem of actions that teach lawlessness. Be a Christian and live like the world. That's the message in Azle, Texas. And it goes much farther than Azle. But we can go to church, we can be saved, we can be Christian, and then we can do everything the world does and go to heaven. That is contrary to the gospel that delivers men from the world. It's contrary to the gospel who separates us out. And so the actions of confessing Christians are deceiving the world into an antinomianism that says you can have Jesus and the world and go to heaven. It's a false gospel. Compromising for the self, verses 12 and 13, this is what I believe is going on with Peter. You see it in the text. Now, before, there was these certain men that came from James. Well, this is what Peter was doing. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. They're converted. They're hamming it up together. They love God. They love the Bible. They're all good. And man, it's all grace. It's all good gospel. But see, when these people came, Peter drew back, separated himself because of fear. Peter has, at least here, at this juncture in his life, insecurity. Peter's actions portray that dreaded phrase, the fear of man. Fear makes people do weird things. You remember in John 9 verse 22, remember that blind guy? His parents, he said what they said, why? Because they feared the Jews. They, they may kick us out of the synagogue. So for the sake of fear, we're going to say this. Or in Matthew 10, 28, have no fear of those who puts the body to death but are not able to put the, the soul to death. You better fear God. So whatever we're going to do with this fear, we better have more fear of God than of man. Because when you have fear of man, over here, I act this way with my Gentile friends. But when my Jewish friends show up, I forget about my Gentile friends because I'm afraid of what my Jewish friends might say about what I'm doing with my Gentile friends. And so you get hung in this awkward position of trying to figure out how to please men. And that's what happened to Peter. Now, he was insecure, at least at this moment. I'm not saying in every aspect of his life, but here for sure he was. And because of that, here's what's bad. As a Christian... Whether you believe it or not, if you confess that you're a Christian, you're a member of By the Word Baptist Church, you believe Christ, you've been baptized by immersion, and that is somewhat relatively known in your life and around the circles that you run, you have influence. Whether they say it or not, whether they say anything to you or not, they are judging your life while they say you shouldn't judge. Peter's actions... We're leading Jews 
and Gentiles astray. And the Greek word to draw back, it carries these following implications. To draw back or disappear from a position. To hesitate in regards to something. To avoid, to be timid, to keep silent. Let's do it a little bit more applicable for us today. Just to get the picture in your head. Let's say you got some Mexican friends. I got lots of Mexican friends. I got more Mexican friends than do American friends, I think. But so I'm hanging out with my Mexican buddies. We're speaking a little bit of Spanish, and we're having a good time talking about the Lord. And it's all good. And we're in this thing together. We're all going to heaven together. There's neither male nor female. There's neither white nor black. I mean, we're all one in Jesus Christ. And man, we're all together here, me and all my Mexican buddies, right? And then all these white Americans come into the room, and they sit at a table over here in the fellowship hall. And I'm like, I wonder what they're thinking about me sitting over here with these Mexicans. I, I, I don't, I, you know, guys, I, I better go over and say hi. And so I move back over here. And these guys are saying, why are you moving over there? And my actions now, I'm going to gravitate to those of the same color. I want to be close to them because I'm afraid of what they might think if I spend too much time over there. This is real stuff. This happens all the time. You go into a diverse room with multicolored people in the room, and you watch, and the colors will end up at the same tables. Not in every case, but most of the times, black people will end up where the black people are, white people where the white people are, and the Mexicans where the Mexicans are, and nobody told them to do it. So all of a sudden, there's this uncomfortability of race things, and so fear of man drives us to the place we're more comfortable. So he separates, separates, to remove one party from another party, (laughs) to separate, to take away. Now, in a positive sense, we are to separate from the world. Definitely do that, but not separate from Christians of different socioeconomical or racial type positions. I'm not separating from a black guy because a white guy walks in a room. If they're both Christian, that doesn't make any sense. Now, when it comes to Christianity, we withdraw from the world. Or in Corinth, we go out from their midst and we separate from them. Uh, Or uh, when Jesus comes, he's going to do some separating sheep and goats for sure. Now, Peter... You've got to have this image of this room. They're all eating together. A lot of times after they eat together, they have communion together. And so all this food is there, and you've got Peter over here, and everything's good until this other group walks in the room. He separates, he draws back, and he isolates himself from the first group. And then he leads away, calls someone to go astray in belief. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him. Even Barnabas, and you see, was led astray to draw back and to separate like Peter did. His actions led some astray. Peter's actions affected not only his own walk, they affected the walk of other Jews. Barnabas, I did a whole sermon on Barnabas. What a great guy. I mean, what an encourager. What a blessing. I mean, he's a guy you'd just love to be around. And Peter causes him to stumble. And he, he's led astray because he was watching Peter. That's to his own fault. He should have been watching Jesus. I get it. But 
he was trying to follow a mentor, follow one who's a, an apostle, and it led him astray. Peter's actions were hypocritical, as well as those who followed him in his hypocrisy. The word for hypocrisy here and the verb and the noun are both interesting. To join in playing a part, pretending, or the noun, to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes. So I put my Christian mask on at church where you'll all think I'm Christian. But then on Monday, when I'm with these people, I don't want them to think ill of me. I don't want to wear my Christian mask anymore. So I'll take my Christian mask off and I'll put on my world mask. I'll speak like them, dress like them, and act like them where they will accept me. But by your actions of doing so, this is what you're saying. The gospel does not create a new man. The gospel didn't change my heart. The gospel really did nothing for me because I'm still just as much worldly as you are. You say, you say well, if I ask you in private, one-on-one, does the gospel create a new man? You say, yes, but your actions of living like the world are nullifying your confession that the gospel changes a man's life. Happens all the time. Your words and actions during the week teach people something about the gospel. The question is, what is my life, what is your life teaching your coworker? What is it teaching your classmate? What is it teaching your own family? I mean, what do your actions in your own living room Teach your children about the gospel. Your conversations, your priorities, the things that are the most important that you say are the most important, what do your kids say is most important? Well, I know this is most important because this is all my daddy does. I know this is most important because this is all my mama does. And there's houses filled with people who have a right confession, but their children will say, the most important thing in our home is the phone. The most important thing in our home is the computer. No, no, I know dad says God's number one and the church is number one, but I know that's not true because he's taught me by the way he lives. Happens all the time. And so by our actions, what we do is nullify the power of the gospel and by actions, which is what is most learned from, we come to find out our words mean nothing and our life has taught a different God. It's dangerous. That's exactly what Peter did here in his actions. He has distorted the gospel and he has led others astray. Think about these phrases. We believe the gospel creates a new man, gives him a new nature, causes him to love the Lord, to love the truth, to love the church. But do our actions confirm our words? The gospel sets us free from the dominion of the world. Does our actions confirm this? And lastly, to move on, verse 14, corrected for the gospel. Paul saw in verse 14 their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel 
It's really one Greek word here, not in step with the truth of the gospel. Uh, this word means to walk consistently in a basic definition, but let's explore it just a little bit more. Their action, let's see, verse 14, when he saw that their conduct, their, their conduct was not in step, they didn't act rightly. They weren't straightforward. In a great lexicon, it's worded this way. This word is first used in the New Testament, in Galatians 2.14, to describe the conduct of Peter, the followers of James at Antioch, denying freedom from the law. They do not walk firmly according to the truth of the gospel, such as in obedience to the reality of of the salvation that is accomplished in Christ. Their life is not standing up straight in parallel with the gospel. Their life doesn't match the gospel. What they do contradicts what they say. And because of that, Paul says, when I saw it, I would not tolerate it. This word deals with a new relationship with God and the implied conduct the relationship should bring. No matter what Peter or the others may say in answer to questions, their actions are contrary to the truth of the gospel of grace. Peter and the others, by example, Peter and the others were by action insisting that certain ceremonial laws must be kept. And in our day, many are promoting that moral laws are to be thrown out. You're free. Live however you want. It's the exact opposite of the pendulum. Theirs was, do this to get saved. Today, get saved and live however you want. Two opposite extremes. Paul's right in the middle with the true gospel of grace. The Baptists of old had more laws and rules than the Pharisees. I know, I were one of them. Many today act as if godliness, get this, people think godliness is legalism. Apparently, you don't know what godliness is. And, and they think Christians should be able to live however they want, like the gospel frees us to be worldly. Think that through. Jesus saved me where I could be like the world. Then why did I need to be saved? I was already like the world. So what did he save me from? It doesn't even make any sense. For clarity, God saves people by his grace. And those he saves... They live to him for his glory and for their good. The Christian lives with a new heart, a new spirit, not to obtain salvation, but because he is very much Christian. And then notice, you started with a face-to-face rebuke in verse 11, and you end with a public rebuke in verse 14. He told Peter 101 in verse 11, and now he tells the whole group. You see that in 14. I said the Cephas... And before them all. How can you by action try to make the Gentiles live like Jews? Your conduct will lead them to believe they must be circumcised in order to be saved. Your conduct will have them trying to keep the law as a means of justification. We cannot tolerate it. Flip that around for us today. Your actions are telling people that the gospel doesn't have the power to deliver anybody from anything. 
We can't tolerate that. Somebody needs to confront Peter. Somebody needs to say, look, as a Christian, you can't live like this because you're going to lead people to hell. Your own kids and your grandkids and your co-workers because they've been convinced from your life the gospel means nothing. What the world needs to see is a complete depraved sinner get affected by the power of the gospel and be separated from the world. And they go, wow, that is significant. That guy used to be and used to be and used to be, but now he's like, what happened? God saved him. That's what happened. And I think there's a lot of testimony not going out in Azel of that right there that God's gospel totally and radically changed a man and made him different than the world. In conclusion then, will the actions of the church or the individual teach others something that is contrary to the gospel? Then it must be stopped. Now, I want to pick on the charismatics and the Baptists in my conclusion. So, <clears throat> charismatics by action teach one needs to be bab- the baptism of the Spirit they teach you must be able to speak in tongues to have a full salvation. You have to manifest sign gifts to be really Christian. The charismatics want to know if you receive the full gospel or if you've only got the gospel of salvation. And then on the other side, you've got evangelicals. By action, they teach that men must do something to bring about salvation. Christian radio, evangelical churches, and nominal Christians everywhere are saying things like this, quote, You need to let Jesus take control of your life. Poor little Jesus is just waiting on me to let him do something. Quote number two, you need to let Jesus in your heart. He's trying to get in. You just got to open the door. Here's that all famous statement. You just need to let go and let God. And other trite phrases that picture God as an impotent deity who's waiting on the power of man to grant him permission. The result of such nonsense has permeated the evangelical world to the degree that countless people believe they are saved because they did what the evangelical leader told them to do. They've walked the aisle. I remember, I'll never forget, the church over here, that power team. And the power team, I went just to see all the stupidity that they do. And sure enough, it was stupid. They give an invitation, and somebody comes walking down the aisle to get saved. I knew who they were, so I just grabbed a hold of them. I pulled them over to my pew. I said, what are you doing? I'm going forward to get saved. You've already been saved. You already confessed Christ. You can't get saved again. He just told me. He said, yeah, but if I go forward, they take me in the back, and I get a free T-shirt and a prize. It's true. That's what they said to me. And they went on forward. They could go back with the bodybuilders and sit with them and get a free prize. What kind of nonsense? Stuff goes on all the time. And so we've walked the aisle. We've prayed the prayer. We've been baptized multiple times. But we now live under the deception that the gospel has no power to change men. We did a revival in Azel. That's when Jeff and Lisa started coming to the church. They did a revival downtown. Had a guy come in and lead the singing, and he, and he wrote a song, The Old Man is Dead. Well, he wasn't dead. It was not dead. The old man was very much still alive. But by the song he wrote and the life he lived, he taught all of his friends that the gospel has no power to kill the old man and bring a new man. We need some more Paul's who will rebuke those who by their actions 
are teaching a false and impotent gospel. Way too much is tolerated in the evangelical world in the name of love, non-confrontation, and let us not offend anyone. We are now paying the price of over a hundred years of not confronting Peter. And that's what we're living in. The world we've reaped is one that never confronted Peter, and we've lost the gospel in many ways. So I pray you never give up fighting for the truth of the gospel. May you live it out this week. Father, thank you for By the Word Baptist Church. Thank you for these who would gather here tonight. Lord, we all need to be encouraged. We all need to be strengthened. That tomorrow, that if you grant us tomorrow jobs and homes and wherever it is that we go, that our actions would reflect the gospel properly. Lord, help us in this. And Lord, we're all fallen. We make mistakes, but help us to be humble and to confess that we failed when we fail. But Lord, that overall our actions would show a gospel that delivers, a gospel that saves, a gospel that creates a new man, a gospel where the old passes away and behold, all things become new. Lord, help our lives be a resounding testimony to the truth that we would not have to be confronted by Paul. And Lord, also help us in the right way, in the right heart, in the right frame to confront those who need to be confronted when they need to be confronted and plead for them to change their actions for the sake of your gospel. Help us this week, we pray, that we can reflect your name rightly. We pray this by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.